0: Greetings, everybody. Welcome in to another episode of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast, the podcast that I always wanted to listen to but could never find. So I just decided to start it myself, and that was over five years ago. So welcome in, everybody. Thank you for joining me on this journey, whether you are a regular listener or uh, perhaps a newbie. Welcome in. Happy to have you with us as well. There are, however, certain people who deserve extra Uh, welcoming in status, and those, of course, are my VIP listeners, the very important pickers. And today's VIP of the show is Fred Kinch. Fred is a new student at age 55, and he is already incorporating the right and left-hand boot camps into his practice routine. So, Fred, thank you so much for your generous support, and uh, I'm happy to know that you are including the podcast exercises as part of your balanced banjo breakfast and for those of you unaware the way to achieve this elite vip status for uh podcast listeners is you head over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast you throw me a couple bucks a month there are amazing rewards to be had in exchange and that's all in addition to the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping support the uh the little banjo podcast that could so, one more time, that's patreon.com slash podcast. and thank you once again to today's VIP, Fred Kinch. I also couldn't do this show without the support of my amazing sponsors, Sullivan Banjos, Elderly Instruments, and Peghead Nation. You'll hear more about them later. Other exciting news from Picky Fingers HQ, there is a clearance sale, 23% off of everything in the official Picky Fingers merchandise store. That's those official Picky Fingers logo t-shirts, the stickers, and also the music downloads, the intro and outro theme music for this podcast, along with Banjo Tablature. You can get anything there at 23% off by entering coupon code SUMMER23, that's all one word, at checkout. And to find that, you go to banjopodcast.com navigate to the store there, add a bunch of items to your cart. Of course uh, sizes and colors will be somewhat limited this is after all a clearance sale before I restock going into the fall. Uh, So yeah once again banjopodcast.com and enter SUMMER23 at checkout to get 23% off your entire order Along those same lines I will be restocking merch so if anybody has some cool new merchandise idea of something that you have been dying to purchase with the Picky Fingers logo on it, uh, shoot me a note. That's at Podcast at gmail.com. You can also email me with any other questions, comments, or concerns. Today's episode is a slightly different style of episode uh, from my usual interviews. I'm calling this one the Masters of the Five String Banjo Revisited episode featuring Tony Trishka and Pete Warnick, who are the two authors of this uh, hopefully well known book. I can't, uh, I I never miss an opportunity to highly recommend this book to people. Now, unfortunately, it is out of print, so it might be tough to find those copies, but uh, in terms of banjo resources, this is one of the best ones out there and really had a huge impact on me personally and was an inspiration for me doing this podcast because it was, well, chock full of banjo players interviewing other banjo players about really nerdy, in-depth banjo stuff. So, If that reminds you of this podcast, that is not by accident. I took a a huge influence from that book. And when I found myself at Midwest Banjo Camp about a month ago, along with Tony Trishka and Pete Wernick, who have both been interviewed individually on the show, I figured that was a great opportunity to get together with them and discuss the making of this book. And they were, of course, very generous with their time to sit with me to do just that. So give a warm picky fingers welcome to Tony Trishka and Pete Wernick. Let's get started. It's a real pleasure running into you guys. I think I've probably told you both maybe on separate occasions, but if you've forgotten, then let me express once more my gratitude that you put in so much work on this uh, book. It's definitely been an inspiration on what I'm doing with the podcast. I loved it from the moment I saw it and I've read it cover to cover a few times. So it's uh, an honor to speak with you both about it. I don't think any treatise like this exists for maybe any other discipline that i know of so that makes me curious how is it that this exists for us lucky banjo players
1: i actually happened to have a letter that i proposed just such a thing to music sales where i had had a couple of successful books and tony had you know he got started doing stuff for them too thanks to and- pete Yeah, I recommended him when they were after me to do yet another book, and I thought, uh, I was doing so well with the first two, and I was a big Tony Trishka fan, still am, and this was me doing good deeds for my buds uh, to help them along in their early careers. And so um, they asked me to do Melodic Banjo, and I sent him to Tony, and he did a fine job and so on. And then I thought, there is a book I'd like to do. I'd like to interview all these guys and i i wrote him a proposal and uh nothing happened just nothing and i didn't care uh i wasn't that hot to do it but i didn't care but then tony uh you did some interviews in
2: another book in my banjo song book yeah and, and in
1: in uh, the melodic banjo book too yeah and and it, it was wonderful to see him there you get to hear what they say about it. it's not just a bunch of numbers on lines
0: yeah
1: and uh a lot of people think banjo players have no personality. Would you agree?
2: <laughs> I, I agree we have no personality. Is that what you're saying? I'm not yeah. sure. Well, you know, the people joke it. Yeah. what
1: do what the banjo players use for birth control, and it's their personality. Their personality yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, when you watch us play, because, you know, Earl, as a young boy, he would, you know, when he first started playing with people, he was playing along by himself. He could play a tune as many times as he wanted, but when he started playing with people... You notice these guys were looking real dour and just kind of, and, and Earl was thinking, well, you should be smiling, you know, when you're playing. Uh-huh. And if you see him in, you know, videos with the Martha he's White shows, smile always. he's always looking out at the camera with a little bit of a smile. So he had a personality. Don Reno would do the same thing, but oh, most Don of us, amazing. Yeah, you know, I mean, Ralph exuded smile. Okay. Maybe not, but uh, <laughs> I mean, it was one of my favorite bands. I remember shows, seeing
1: people walk in front of the stage of Newgrass revival in front of Bela and this won't work so good on radio, but they would hold up the, corners of their mouths to say like come on smile already and he was concentrating come on yeah, he's doing everything that stuff imaginable. isn't
2: easy being bail of fleck you can't right
1: well you, it's you, funny though you see so jens Kruger. i just saw him on tv and he's like filled with joy as he's doing this most incredible complicated stuff and he's kind of laughing about it and he doesn't miss a note i mean ugh. and and we admire that
0: you know yeah uh, seeing johnny bear last night really struck me as a throwback to that kind of showmanship like yeah i don't want to say hamming it up because it's it's not like it's not authentic he's right. really enjoying himself yeah but it's just a, a that little extra awareness it. of that's
2: called uh, selling presentation yeah. yeah but that's yeah. what earl did and that's what you know and there was a it was the show it was an idea of the show there's also three banjo players when people talk
1: about smiling banjo players they can say there's three shall we name them Alan Shelton's one of them. One of them, and Roy Clark. Yeah, Roy Clark. Who's not in the bluegrass world, but smiled like crazy on Hee Haw, and... Little Roy? Yes, but I wasn't thinking of him. That makes four. Doug Dillard. Oh, yeah, Doug Dillard, was yeah. Huge grin, wouldn't stop grinning. Everybody else, too busy, I'm busy, sorry. (laughs) Yeah. You know. Anyway, so um, we both got into the idea of doing interviews, and I had been a radio person. I had done mm-hmm. quite a few interviews, interviewed Don Reno, in fact, at the first Bluegrass Festival, and I enjoyed doing interviews. And um, there's a bit of a technique to it, as you're well aware, you know, especially for people who are not used to being, um, you know, verbal for audiences yeah. as much as just playing the music. And I found that if you just got... Relax with them a little bit and asked a few of the standard questions just to let them get started. And then you showed some specific interest in something that they did that not everybody knows about. Then now you get into their circle a little bit and then yeah. you, you it's important to just let them talk and see if they'll get going. And mm-hmm. if they don't, you can still kick them along a little bit. So I got long conversations out of Ralph Stanley uh JD Crow who's more talkative than most people was more talkative than most people would have guessed and um we went from i mean we started we got the agreement uh should, uh, uh, should we say Jason's full name he was the guy it's at, in the book Jason oh, yeah, Shulman. Right. Yeah. yeah Jason, Jason Shulman. Shulman. yeah and he was good enough to say yeah let's try for this and we were a little scared both of us i think you could remember this that like this might get pretty long, you know. We're gonna, we wanted to interview like sixteen or eighteen players. It turned out to be eighteen, something like that anyway. And uh I was just worried, I thought oh, they're gonna edit it all over the place and it mm-hmm. won't really be that good. And cutting to the chase, they didn't edit anything. We we put in like everything except the ho-hum stuff, and it was a ton of it. The book is four hundred and thirty pages. Yeah. So we got started on it, and right away you interviewed Don Reno, and then he died.
2: Got there just <laughs> wow. in time. Yeah. Just in time. Incredible.
1: And that way Didn't we got everybody who was really significant in the bluegrass banjo world, except Earl Scruggs. Now I was pretty friendly with Earl, and I said, uh, "We can't, you know, would you be interviewed?" He said, "No, I don't want to be interviewed." And I went, "We can't have a book like this without a big chapter on you." Mm-hmm. And I proposed to him that I would write a whole big chapter, and I would let him see it and make any changes. He was very agreeable to that. And I came to realize that he was not very pleased with the way he could talk about the banjo. Mm-hmm. In private, he had a lot to say about musicianship and whatnot, and we'd have wonderful conversations like that but he was just not the kind of guy who wanted to get quoted much and he i remember reading about how when he was starting to play all the players in North Carolina were playing herky jerky and he didn't want to play herky jerky and i'm thinking yeah that wouldn't read so well you know i read it in, in an interview but and then i came to realize that that was the way he he wanted it but he was he had been writing they were ghostwritten articles in um pickin magazine that i'm sure we're done with his cooperation but and he had a lot to say in these picking magazine articles and you just you know when you have such a central figure like that you You have to make it work
0: somehow and i was
1: so i was very heartened that he let me write this chapter and then he okayed the chapter with a couple of small things that might make interesting conversation later and the the we want to include a lot of tablature but we couldn't get permission to almost anything because it's owned by the rival publisher peer international but we were able to get foggy mountain special which was great except you remember no he didn't want us to use it <laughs> okay he let me well, know that he didn't want right. foggy mountain special in there so there are tabs of that tune which is one of his most brilliant tunes but they're not authorized by him in any way, and um, whatever for whatever that's
0: worth. But we, we had to sit there and figure out who to put in the book, and that was an ordeal. Well, yeah, we we, we will definitely get to that. I know that was probably the most uh, contentious aspect uh, of this. From from having talked to both of you about it, um, but to, to not back between up between us, the, right? We, no, we had no words the, about that. Uh, well, that I
2: remember anyway. <laughs> Um, There was that knife fight, but yeah,
1: uh, yeah. we're
0: over that. So to to back up, you conceived it as interviews. It, of course, ended up being, you already said there's tablature, but there's a lot more than just the interviews. When did it start being this snowball that, like, oh, and this would be cool, and that would be cool, and we should do this too, and... I mean, I think the main thing that's,
2: well, besides all the interviews, which are, of course, important, I'll just say one thing about... uh, the interviews, the the one that stands out in my mind is interviewing Bill Monroe, me for too. me anyway, mm-hmm. because we, we we decided we'll both interview Bill Monroe. Okay, and so I was out. I was playing with this band. I was in Skyline, and we were out at some festival south of Chicago or something. And I was friendly with Bill Monroe's bass player, Mark hemry at the time, who has a wonderful book out now called Five Years on the Bus, telling all these on stories. On the Bus with Bill Monroe, I believe is the exact Is title. that what is? It, five Years yeah. on the Bus with Bill Monroe? Anyway, so I went to went up to Mark and said, would this be a good time to interview Bill? And he said, yeah, well, why don't you go on and try it, try now. So I get on the bus and there are the four Coon Creek girls, New Coon Creek girls, On either side of Bill, and he's just as happy as a pig, and you know. (laughs) (laughs) And there are these three pies stacked up in boxes on the on the table in front of him. And before I could say anything, he just said, "Would you like a pie?" (laughs) And I didn't know what the correct answer was. And I went, "Uh, "No, no, thanks." And I I figured this probably isn't a good time to, so I just uh, left the bus. And then asked Mark again, maybe half an hour before the show, you know, when should I do this? I said, why don't you go on now? So I go on now. And, and, and Pete, uh, Bill was very jolly when I went on the first time, needless to say. Again, I come on the second time about half an hour before he's going, going on stage. And he comes from the back where his bedroom is. He has his big bed back there. And he's you know, fixing his tie. And uh, I said, Bill, is this a good time for me to do an interview? And he said, that'd be fine. And then I sit down with him, and then uh, I say, so, Bill, um, what part would you say the banjos had in your music? And he said, it had its place. (laughs) This dead airspace here is what happened. And, you know, he looked out into infinity to some spot out, you know, in the cosmos. And, okay, now what about, you know, when Earl Scruggs joined the band? That really helped your music, didn't it, in some ways? And he said, I taught him the blues. (laughs) <laughs> Tony is now looking out to the infinity space <laughs> yeah, for those of not watching It was <laughs> It was a really, something to that effect. I mean, if you have the book, you can look at it. It may not have been exactly that, but it was pretty close to that kind mm-hmm. of a thing. It was a really awkward, awkward conversation. Maybe I, I should have taken a tip from you, Pete, because you, I'd done many interviews at that point, but this was the toughest one I ever had to do. I, I had a number of times where I interviewed Bill,
1: and he was a tough cookie At times. Mm -hmm. In fact, I have a horrible tape recording of myself trying to to get him to talk in an interview on the phone, which I found out later was a no-no, but I didn't know. I I was in New York and he was in Nashville. After about eight tries, he comes to the phone and I say, you know, uh, I'm writing a book about bluegrass singing. And of course, I have to interview you, your, your father, bluegrass and all that. And so I said, well, what is special about bluegrass singing? And uh, and then we have about eight seconds of silence. And he says, how much do you know about bluegrass? And by this time, I'm blubbering because I am more uncomfortable than you can imagine. And I said, I just really want to hear you. And then he he says, well, I'm kind of busy right now. Why don't you call me tomorrow night? I said, oh, okay, what time? He says, three o'clock. And I go, three o'clock at night, uh, and he's, he's already hung up. <laughs> <laughs> I had already interviewed him for a whole hour with uh, the 1966 version of the band when I had a radio show in New York City, and David mm-hmm. Grisman arranged for uh, us to do a full hour up at Ralph Rinzler's apartment. And I still have a, a fantastic tape of this hour-long program, mm-hmm. and I interview Bill, and one of the things I did was say, well, you know, when you started bluegrass in 1945 and right away he said, no, that's when Lester and Earl were in my band, but bluegrass started in 1939. We added the banjo. He might not have even mentioned Scruggs, which was another little feature of the way he talked about the banjo in general. Yeah. And, uh, and he told what was good about, they don't need no hot guitar, don't need no dobro, various things that later became standard in bluegrass. But otherwise, he was nice. He had actually called me up once when I was on the air, which amazed me that he would call me up. Yeah. But I had just plugged a bunch of his shows and he was at Tex Logan's house and he called me up. But then I interviewed him other times when he had the time and he was completely nice. He would call me Pete. In the interview which is the only time he ever used my name ever (laughs) and 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 i interviewed him several times i have hours of interviews with him but the one that i remember the most really is the one i did on the banjo Uh, and i don't even remember where that one was but it was a long interview and um he was with it okay and then I, i realized what i could and couldn't ask him and he, one of the, I mean, there's so much I could say about it, but some of the most interesting things was that he refused to acknowledge Earl Scruggs. He called the style of banjo Snuffy Jenkins style. Uh-huh. And then he talked about now, then people came along like Brad Keith that could really play the melody. And he was very happy about that. And he talked nicely about Bill Keith. And at one point when Scruggs, Came up in the conversation he says there's no telling how much good molly and Tenbrook's done for earl scruggs meaning he gave him the material that he could use his style on and if it wasn't for that earl scruggs he said he would have just had to go back to the to the farm in north carolina but i gave him something to do and worked out good for him and that's about as much as he wanted to say until very late in the interview he said earl at the time was home all the time because he had a bad back and he couldn't go on the road he says it's too bad that Earl doesn't go out more. He says, you know, Earl done good for Molly and Tenbrooks too. <laughs> and I <laughs> thought, oh, he knows how to be charitable. He made a how concession. Yeah,
0: that's yeah. Cool. Anyway, my favorite recollection of the Bill Monroe interview, and I guess given that it sounds like it was a composite between yes. both of you discussing, so I don't know which of you had this conversation. There was something about he wants to play fiddle tunes the way the guy that wrote it.
1: Oh yeah, att- I, that was my interview. Be. <laughs> and if, I like and telling you, that story. He <laughs> said, uh, I, he says, yeah, the banjo player needs to play the tune the way it was wrote.
0: Yeah.
1: And I thought, well, how do you know, um, like who wrote Katie Hill? And I thought that was an ancient tune. He says, no, that would be Clayton McMinchin mm-hmm. and people like that. And I said, so I went back, I said, how about Arkansas traveler? How do you know how that guy played it when he made it up? He said, if anybody in the world could hear me play an Arkansas traveler, they'd know I was playing it right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and, and I just thought, round wow, and round it's we go. amazing yeah. to be so confident. Yeah. What a thing, you know. And Butch Robbins, in his book, which is a fascinating book, oh, yeah. um, said, if Bill didn't like the way the sun came up that morning, he'd tell you how the sun should have come up. <laughs> So that was just interesting to hear the guy that basically enabled Bluegrass Banjo to hit, hit the scene. Because if he hadn't hired Earl, well, he would have ended up with Don Reno. Everybody kind of knows that story that mm-hmm. he had asked Don Reno, who went into the service instead. And then Reno ended up playing later with, uh, with Monroe, but he never recorded much with him. And, um, well, he but never he never officially recorded with them. That's right. He's not on any official on any release official, by really. dec-
2: uh, by Columbia Records or whatever they were on. But if you go to YouTube and put in Don Reno and Bill Monroe, there's like an hour's worth of transcripts from the Opry. Of, really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Just like all the know. stuff with the Flatten and Scruggs, but there's also Reno stuff. I didn't realize. Where so he yeah. does White House Blues, and he used to tell me this that sometimes he'd take a solo on a tune, and the entire solo would just be forward rolls, nothing but forward rolls. And he does one of the solos on White House Blues like that. Working. I hollered, my kidneys Doc said, my kidney, I can't find the soul found a found Doc <laughs> told horse, threw said, the horse, he down his way He said, to horse, got from the train Come <laughs> so, <are>, <laughs> <laughs> Murat, he took off his hat. <laughs> 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 This would have been 40, like, 48, 48 or forty-nine. 48, yeah. Before when when we were kind of young. Uh, yeah, I was alive in forty-nine. Well, know. anyway,
1: anyway. So luckily, you know, Tony interviewed um, Don Reno, and that was great because Don's a friendly guy, and uh, and you know he he was very agreeable, and I was glad that all of these people realized it was worth spending the time with us. opportunity. Nobody gave us a, like a one word answer kind of interview, although it felt like it was going to be like that with Ralph Stanley, but he, he opened up, but Mm -hmm. a lot of these guys really didn't have a whole lot to say verbally about it. They would just assume you listen to the music and that's, that's the message is just listen, you know, and Ralph was as about uh, really as much interested in his singing and the band singing as he was with his own banjo playing. And he was in the shadow of Earl Scruggs at the time, but he worshiped Earl and he was fabulous. And if you listen to some (laughs) of the stuff he was doing in the seventies with some of his great bands, then he was on fire that guy. And by that time, Earl had kind of slowed down and he wasn't as, as brilliant as he had previously been, but Ralph was playing really fast and just fabulous. And he had this incredible band. And anyway, but what happened was that as we were on the telephone, little Ralph, too, would come on the phone. He was six years old at the time. He's like in his 40s now, I guess. And he was just being a wise-ass little kid. Mm-hmm. And Ralph kept telling him to get off the phone. <laughs> so this is, that was entertaining. Um, and I don't know, do you have any other highlights of uh, the interviews you did?
2: Snuffy Jenkins. Uh, yeah, like you did that. Of, um, yeah, that's amazing that you were. Yeah, I, I, I I'd interviewed him there. for the uh, my banjo songbook before that, but I interviewed him again for this. And uh, <clears throat> I was invited to uh, play with a group called the Violent Femmes, who are not violent in their guys. <laughs> but uh, I got friendly with them, and I was on one of their songs on one of their records called The Country Death Song, but that's another story. <laughs> and so they had like a very punk, you know... Kind of crowd that they played for with ta- tattoos. Well, everyone has tattoos these days, but back then fewer. And then, Mohawk haircuts and piercings, you know this whole thing. And uh, me and my friend Barry Mitterhoff we were going to sit in with them. And I think we were supposed to start at midnight or something like that. And the sound check was seven o'clock. So we do the sound check, and then Barry and I decided, well, what are we going to do? Let's let's see a movie. So we opened up the New York Post, which is even better than the New York Times. Well, maybe not. But anyway, you open it up. <laughs> And we're looking through <laughs> the movies, and then suddenly there's a picture of Snuffy Jenkins and Pappy Sherrill, who was his musical in the New York uh, Oh no, in the New York Post. In the New York Post, York Post. and it was an ad, it just happened to be there. They were playing that night at eight o'clock, and by this time, it, I think it was eight o'clock already. And we got, and it's downtown on White Street in Manhattan, wherever that is and there was no GPS in these days, so we hailed a cab. Uh, We gotta get to White Street. I don't know where it is, and they drove off. We Uh literally found six cabs We've take me called... to Snuffy Jenkins. Oh, no problem. Oh, yeah. Why didn't you say that in the <laughs> first place, like Santa Claus? Anyway, after after six tries, we finally found someone in New White Street, and they, or they found it in their map book, whatever. They take us to White Street, and it's like quarter of nine. We figured oh, we probably missed Snuffy and Pappy because I think there was someone else on the bill, and they're probably headlining, or whatever. So we get down there. They haven't started yet. So we got to see Snuffy. I'd never seen him play live before. And it was just a great show. And he played washboard as That's well as incredible. banjo. Yeah. yeah, and had the funny hat on. And, you yeah. know, it was just fantastic. And at the end of the show, I went up to him and said, Snuffy, you know, I, I interviewed you for this other book, but I'd love to interview, for, interview you for this new book I'm doing. And he said, I, I don't have anything to say. It'd be like, not unfriendly, but it'd be the same as talking to yourself. And I said, "Well, I don't mind talking to myself. So, can we do this?" And (laughs) and it turned out that Pappy and the other people, and there there was some young guitar player playing with them. Uh, They were going to go sightseeing in New York the next day, but Pappy was a little tiny bit under. He said, "I'm a little under the weather. I'm just going to stay in the hotel, and when you come by tomorrow, so I did." And there he is, and there's his banjo on the bed. And you know, I interviewed him for a while and talked him about how you know they would go to fiddle contests together, he and Earl. And this sort of thing and uh, I I asked him I I knew he'd played Dear Old Dixie in the past you know he'd said that you know and I asked him would you play Dear Old Dixie and I'm recording this and he played I mean my band was over there but he played it similar to what Earl did but different some cool stuff he was tuned up in A like G tuning up in A without a capo he just had it tuned sharp by a whole step I remember that now Mm -hmm. And, uh, and he played that and then I said could you play Sally Gooden and he played Sally Gooden almost exactly like Earl did. Very, you know, that same position. And I had asked Earl in an interview where he got that position. He said he didn't remember. But just sidebar, I, because uh, I'd just been thinking about this. And I looked back at my banjo songbook, and I just wanted to see what Snuffy said there. And in there, he says that he got that position from Smith Hammett and Rex Brooks, who were the two banjo players around Flint Hill. Back when Earl was growing up, and Snuffy heard them, and he said, "That's where he got it from." And it was like, it's, I mean, even I mentioned it today to somebody you know mm. to one of the classes. and I think it's so cool to know that it at least goes goes that far it's back. A, it's a web and of stuff, not just yeah. A, that position did not start with Earl or Snuffy, but these two guys who were around in those days. And where did they get it from? Yeah, just to finish. So I, I just asked Snuffy, "Can I can I try your banjo?" He said, "Sure." And it's the banjo that has a pickguard on it, mm-hmm. and it's a pre-war flathead. Yeah. And so you know, I start playing it. It sounded so amazing because you're not touching the head and yeah. killing the vibrations on the head, and it just sang. It was like, "Can I have this stuffy?" <laughs> no. <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so it was a wonderful uh,
0: experience interviewing him. Let's go back to what we alluded to before the actual selection process, or or e- even even further back, what were you hoping to get out of these people? Was there like a main... Everything. ...essence that you wanted to... (laughs) We were just
1: basically two banjo geeks with access. Uh Uh-huh. And especially if they know they're going to be in a book, they're not going to hang up on you or whatever. Uh And we had both put out books before. Not that they were aware of that, but they just knew we were for real. And we had them. And most of the interviews were on the phone, at least most of mine were, and they were, they were fine, though. They, uh, they wanted to answer anything that we had to say. They would cool. try, you know. Yeah. And a lot of them just, they just didn't know. well I interviewed a lot of people, singers, for another book. Hmm. And it was the same thing, except Peter Rowan, who could explain anything really well. Uh, but there was nobody like this in the book, although interviewing Butch Robbins is going to be a trip, no matter how you look at it. And he said some very interesting and insightful things. Um, but a lot of them, you know, one, once they got going, you could really ask them. We had a zillion questions. We, we made up all the questions. you, If you had a full geek uh, interval with them, like down to bridge height, uh, yeah. tailpiece type. It was when, clear that you had a template, but then also, you know, had some liberty to, to be right.
0: following up. And
1: yeah, whatever. well except for one thing which is I interviewed John Hartford and he says I want to interview you can I do the interview of you <laughs> I'm not going to say no to John Hartford yeah. so and we were friends and he just <laughs> he just did the John Hartford thing on me you know he I t- I gave him the template which he somewhat used but he bro- he broke that template just like he was breaking templates for his whole life, you know. Yeah. And whatever you expected him to do, his point would be: <laughs> I'm not going to do that. But I'll do something you'll like, but it won't
2: be that. Yeah, that's kind of a John Hartford way of approaching things. Um, yeah, we we asked him to write liner notes for our first album with my band Skyline, and he said, okay had nothing to do with the band. We sent him the recording, you know, nothing. He just talked about how he heard Earl Scruggs for the first time and almost drove off the road yeah, on his car that's radio. That's like when Bill Keith yeah.
1: wrote on your first album. I know. It
2: yeah. was about a parakeet or something. <laughs> yeah, it was all this other stuff. Anyway, that's <laughs> But, you know, one thing we're overlooking is one of the really important aspects of so this. is um, my friend here who has a Ph.D. in sociology. There, at the beginning of the book, there's all this... There's, there's this chart, I guess you'd call it, whatever, of all... Everything. The people who didn't make it into the, as, as main interviewees, uh, but all their information about
0: the String yeah. and, and at this point, we're talking Ridge. about dozens and dozens yeah, more. Yeah, I, could, I exactly. could tell the
1: story of that, which was both of us were on the road with our bands at the time, and we were running into each other and as well as staying in touch. And we'd say, you know, how are we going to possibly leave out, you name it, <laughs> They're yeah. gonna, the book's going to come out and he's not going to be in it, Bill Emerson you know, Eddie Adcock, people that we worshipped, and they weren't going to be in the book because they weren't the originators and all this.
0: Yeah, for every one person you want to include, there's 10 more who yeah, and it deserve was deserve. And we were
1: yeah. seeing these people on the road, so I'd feel guilty in anticipation of when they'd see the book that they weren't asked to be in.
2: But I yeah. think part of it was, in, speaking about the selection process, we were picking people who were on the scene at that time. This is right. a snapshot of who was around in, and how they're doing it in 1988 or whatever. 85 is when we did most of the work on the book. Okay. It was right in, around yeah. then. Right, you, were, you made Hill Country right in the middle of that. Somewhere in there, but yeah. but And so Bill Emerson was in the country current Navy band, so he wasn't really on, at festivals. Eddie Adcock was kind of off the scene. He was, he was playing with David
1: Allen Coe on a some kind of a gizmo that was sort of like a banjo,
2: and he wasn't playing bluegrass, hadn't been in bluegrass for years, so... Yeah, and Pat Cloud, who was just kind of obscure jazz player who wasn't on the scene, but he put an album out. Right he's around he's a jazz there. player right at this time, so he's in there. And the awkward thing is that we're in there, we're on our own book, which we discussed, and you thought we should be in there, because we were very on the scene, and yet...
0: But what about all these other
2: people? So, but, you know. Speaking of of banjo, let's talk about me. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so then shortly thereafter, you know, once it comes out, then Bill Emerson's back on the scene. And Eddie Aycock's back on the scene. And on and on, you know. So it's a very, it's a snapshot of that time. Larry McNeely's in there too. Yeah, Larry, who who was not. And then he went playing harmonica with... In yeah, writing he, science fiction, you know, played he was, with he Roy was the
1: studio banjo player at the time, the sure. guy. Right. Uh, Bobby Thompson, uh, why didn't we have him as one of the main guys? There must have been a reason.
2: Because he was totally off the scene by, by that time. Yeah, yeah. he had done so. He had so MS much. also
0: at that point. Yeah, also he already was, had MS. So yeah. that was part of deciding the Big 18. Did you have any disagreements about who the Big 18 should be? Not that I, I think
2: remember. I sort of resisted having us in there, but... Yeah, I remember we had that conversation,
1: and I'm thinking, yeah, well, people will raise their eyebrows, but that's not going to keep you out of the book, as far as I'm concerned. Or you, so anyway, well, you we, we just, went with that. I knew you deserved to be in the book, and we had reason to be interested in Bancho educators. For instance, later we included Murphy Henry, who was not known as a picker, but was an important teacher, you know. And... Um, a guy from Europe that I thought was going to become a very big hotshot, Philippe Bourgeois, who has a recording of Dueling Banjos, where he's dressed in, I believe, a clown suit that comes out of Europe, and it has like a half a million hits the last time I saw it. yeah. But And he was a brilliant player, reminded me a lot of Alan Mundy, and I'd met him in Europe a few years before, so he went in the book. And then little Jimmy Henley is in the book, because he was on TV with Roy Clark a lot. And uh here's a guy who wasn't in the book, Sammy Sheeler, mm-hmm. but I did invite him to be part of these extra this extra group, and he just never answered. He was more of a hippie back then, and he wasn't too shall we say you know on top of the business end, but Scott Vestal, I thought we'd better get him in because I knew he was going to be big, yeah. and he did send in the stuff, so basically. I decided to get busy about this. T- Tony was doing the bulk of the tablatures. In fact, I didn't think I did any of them. But Tony likes doing trans- transcriptions and he's good at it. So he was doing that. And then we had some of the players sent in transcriptions because they had them. But um, I just thought, well, we've just got to include these other people. And if we're going to go to this effort, we've got to include it. So, I believe it was 49 extra people we included. Okay. And we still had to leave people out who we had a lot of respect for, but they just weren't making records or something like that. So we maybe they wouldn't be known. And one of the last people we included was Gene Parker, who is not a household name, but I would see him all the time because he was the regular banjo player in Lost and Found. Yeah. And he had his own style. He was a really nice guy. He could really play. And he got in the book. Yeah. And what I did was I made up a two-sided piece of paper questionnaire because that was one of my specialties as a sociologist and I know how to ask questions that would get good answers. And we went through the whole bridge height piece. Yeah. Uh, how many lessons did you take? A lot, a lot of information that didn't take that long for them to write, but part of the fun was asking them their advice to new people players, or to to banjo players, and they all had something to say, Dave Evans answered with uh, three exclamation points after every sentence, because that's the way he was. And uh, Max Wareham recently, he put out a a, a big, wonderful book on um, Rudy Lyle. Yeah. And both Tony and I had seen Rudy Lyle play pretty much when his banjo career was over, but he came out to the early Bluegrass Festivals a time or two, and we got to see him play. And I thought, well, we've got to include Rudy Lyle, and I got a hold of everybody's address, mailed them, you know, this is pre-internet, of course, yeah. mailed them the questionnaire, so Rudy Rudy sends back the questionnaire in a very nice handwriting, and a very appreciative note. And I, I, I photocopied it to give to uh, Max, who, who wrote this whole book on him, but he, they weren't even alive at the same time, those mm-hmm. two guys. And he was very appreciative, And he noted the date, and he says, Rudy died about a a, a month later. Wow. And so we got in by the skin of our teeth on everybody. I don't know anybody that we missed because they died. Joe Medford was mentioned a lot, but I was not even aware of him, and I think I just never came across. But a lot of people mentioned him as an important banjo player in the very early days. And you got to interview Sonny. Right. That had to be a trip.
2: Yeah, I don't remember details because I mean I've spent so much time with him over the years. You know, just being around Sonny. he's like that was one of the cases where as Bill Monroe said, he, he hit his part, the <laughs> infinity look. And In the Sunny, you ask him one question, he'll talk for ten minutes, which is great, which is what you want because you can it edit makes your it job down easier. Yeah, yeah, or it's all just fascinating, and uh, which it was. He didn't. Uh, well, no, never mind. I shouldn't tell it. Yeah, can I tell the story? You can tell it, and, and Keith will edit it out yeah. if we were going to get in trouble. I I it's not, it not in the book, but it's such. Should I tell? It's, it's off topic, but it's a, it's a great yeah. Sonny story that he he told. I asked him to tell him me a second time to make sure I had it right. So Sonny is, I think he was fourteen when he was with Monroe. I sort of remember twelve, but he said it was fourteen. 14 is right. Yeah, I it know was that. fourteen. And uh, he just got the job with Monroe, and they leave Nashville. It's Jimmy Martin and Sonny. And uh, I guess a bass player or something. And they're – no, no, I'm wrong. It's um, Charlie Klein on fiddle. And they're heading up in the in the Bluegrass vehicle, whatever, what kind of car it was. And they're going along and they're playing in North Carolina. And uh, probably Charlie Klein's driving or something. And then Monroe says a little ways along the way, okay, now I want Sonny to drive. And apparently what Sonny said is that Bill wouldn't talk to him because he was a kid. He would talk to Jimmy. And so he said, Jimmy, you tell Sonny he's going to drive now. So (laughs) Sonny gets behind the wheel. 14 years old, uh-huh. driving the Bluegrass Boys. And I said, Sonny, how, did you know how to drive? He said, well, you know, we had a farm in, in, in Kentucky, you know, near the Ohio border, and I drove a tractor. So, so he gets behind the wheel, and there, he's going along. And Monroe says, now we're going to be late. Now, Jimmy, you tell Sonny to put the pedal to the metal, and we're going to get up there <laughs> the way we want to. i never heard this. This is great. And he's going <laughs> along, and suddenly this cop pulls him over, you know, for speeding. And the, and the cop looks in the window and sees Sonny there, says, uh, son, how old are you? I'm 14-year-old, sir, 14-years-old, sir. And the guy looks back and sees Bill Monroe, doesn't recognize him, says, sir, did you know this boy is 14-years-old? And Bill says, no, I didn't know that. I did not know that. <laughs> well, son, I'm going to take you in. And he arrests Sonny and takes him to jail, wherever this was in Southern North Carolina or <laughs> wherever they were at this point. And... Uh, Sonny spends most of the day in jail, and Bill says, "Now we got to—it's heavy traffic, head. We got to get it back. We got to get onto the show. Let's go." And they drive off, leaving Sonny alone, <laughs> fourteen years yes, 14. old, in jail. <laughs> I never heard this, this for is something
0: great. that Bill made him made do, him do. indirectly. But, yeah. yeah, and I said, and <laughs> "Sonny, d- did you
2: call your parents?" He said, "No, no, because then they would have said you'll never play with Bill Monroe again." So he just kept his mouth shut. And they said, at the end of the show, Bill said to Charlie Klein, now, Charlie, you go down there and bail out Sonny. But Sonny spent X number of hours as a 14-year-old kid by himself in jail in some godforsaken, you know, oh I mean, the jail was some godforsaken place. That didn't with, get in the book. That didn't make that's it great. in the book. No, but, but it's a story that's that should have made it fi- in the book. Yes. Yeah, you got to find it out.
0: Yeah. Hey folks, Keith here, just taking a quick break from the episode, but I'll be right back with the rest of it. I did just want to mention that if you are looking to have your dream banjo built, or if you just need some of the top quality components to add to a project or an existing banjo, I couldn't recommend anyone more than Sullivan banjos. Sullivan has been one of the top names in the banjo industry for decades. And Eric Sullivan down in Alabama brings all that experience and adds his personal customized touch to make sure that you are getting the banjo of your dreams. Whether you are looking for a tried-and-true traditional design, or if you want to get a bit more uh, imaginative, chances are, if you can dream it, Eric can build it. I know that's true because I've been playing my own Sullivan custom banjo since 2004. So give Eric Sullivan at Sullivan Banjos a call at 502-365-5022, visit them on the web at sullivanbanjo.com, or email at sullivanbanjo at gmail.com. Now once you have that Sullivan Banjo in your hands, the best way to learn it that I recommend is with Peghead Nation's online streaming video courses. You can learn bluegrass, old time, and Many other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in all of roots music. Check out some of these banjo classes that they offer: beginning banjo with Bill Evans, bluegrass banjo with Bill Evans, clawhammer banjo with Evie Layden, Wade Ward style banjo with Bruce Molski, the banjo according to Danny Barnes, and contemporary bluegrass banjo with Wes Corbett. All of these courses are going to include high-quality multi-angle video lessons downloadable notation and tablature play along tracks and plenty of songs to play along with now the best part is that just for being a Picky Fingers listener you are going to get your first month free just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code Fingers, all one word all lowercase at checkout once again pegheadnation.com and use the promo code pickyfingers to get your first month free folks, another sponsor of the show and one of my favorite places on earth is Elderly Instruments up in Lansing, Michigan. Now, I worked there for about 10 years and it's still where I go for all my banjo, guitar, and any other string instrument needs. So that should really tell you something. Elderly has been family owned since 1972 and has grown to become the world's most trusted source for new used and vintage fretted instruments so whether you are looking for your first beginner instrument or that hard to find vintage collectible elderly is going to have that and they are also going to back it up with the best customer service in the business so head over to elderly.com to see their full inventory online they ship worldwide by the way or give them a call at 517-372-7880
1: There was various mysterious Monroe behavior that I just couldn't figure out. And I I was friends with Nancy Talbot, who put on a lot of shows and festivals in the Northeast. And she was a pioneer with that, and people would stay at her house. They'd come up from the South and stay at her house. And she kind of caught on to a lot of the, the culture that most of us Yankee types are not really exposed to because that culture goes that's in the back room, and they meet us in the front room, you know. And so she says, well, you just don't try to interview Bill Monroe on the phone. Mate. He he wants you to come to Nashville in person. And it's the like good a respect intervie-
0: thing, or
1: is that? Let's not even try to interpret it. She just said it was the rule. And you, we could interpret it as we want, and respect is something. But Whatever, for whatever reason, you just go. And the other interviews that I got with him, I was there in person, and I had we had plenty of time, you know, uh, which, which really helped. And in fact, when there was gonna be a movie about Bill Monroe's life called Can't You Hear Me Calling, and it was gonna have Jake Gyllenhaal in it, and uh, they hired Ronnie McCurry right away to create all the music, so he got all these great players in the studio. Mm-hmm. And um, Michael Daves was in that too. M- who? Michael Michael, Michael Daves. Daves. Yeah. Well, so I said, I have all these interviews with Monroe. You want them? He says, Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I sent him about three hours worth of <clears throat> inter- conversations with me and Monroe. And Ronnie said I can't believe you asked him all those questions and he really answered them you know <laughs> cuz I was asking him about his cattle and what happened in Japan when he went to Japan he said well they treated me as as oh I was as important as the president of the United States and of course if I could do a Monroe imitation that would be all the better but uh-huh. I can't but um and so we're 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 still hero worshipers you know whether it's Sonny or JD Crow or John Hartford any of these And then they'll take the time to have a full conversation and let us fully geek out on them in every imaginable way. Tony wanted the question, what is the future of the banjo, (laughs) which we are now living in, (laughs) (laughs) because it's 40 years later almost. And uh, it was a sensational thrill to do this. And then let's move on to the next chapters. We had to transcribe all the stupid interviews, (laughs) which takes forever. And then there was the tablature and the photos, and we wanted to have pictures of the right hands and the way they wear their pics, everything we could think of, full geekery, nothing, no stone unturned. Yeah,
0: that's a comprehensive And and that took
1: a lot of follow-up because we had to find the photographers who'd go meet up with Alan Shelton or somebody and say, I'm taking pictures of you. And you got to hold your hand like this because I have a diagram that was presented to me. And we want you to hold your hand like this so that you can see all this stuff. So there's a huge amount of detail work. I was on the road a lot with Hot Rise And this is the year 1985. And yours truly had purchased a new thing called a computer in 1984. And it was one of these computers that had two drives in it, but you had to put them in, they were floppy disks, each one holding 20K. And it was a 16 pound thing that I could carry on the hot rise bus and could be plugged in, but they had to turn on the generator of the bus, so I had AC power. And I sat there for hours after hours with my little tape recorder and my my new computer, my 16 pound yeah. computer, Doing and I'm processing. typing, 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 typing. And there's photos of me just typing away, transcribing all these interviews. And meanwhile, Tony is tabbing his head off. Transcribing, <laughs> and uh, then you know, there's the whole business of well, who's going to photograph uh, whoever, you know, and it all got done. It was just laborious. It it got very laborious after all this. Fascinating geekery. Now we have
2: to get serious turn it, and turn present. it in and have it look like something. And <laughs> yeah. I, in my memory, it took us three years, not full time, obviously because we're on the road. But it was a three-year process, chipping away at it. Yeah. And then I remember, some years later, people. I th- maybe I don't know if Music Sales asked us, but people are talking about. Well, there should be a new book out of like this. But, like, with all the people that are, you know, Bill Emerson's now on the scene. Eddie, Tony Cox's Furtado, on the scene, for the Tony matter. Furtado, and, of course, you know, and later is Nolan Pichelny, whatever. But, uh, you know, all these great p- people that didn't make it into our book. And I think these two people, two or three people, said, oh, we'll do it. Oh, that was, I, I'll name them, which is Ian Perry and Ned Lubarecki. Right. Right. Were they the ones that were going to do it? They got in okay. touch with
1: me, and I said, more power and to more you, More yeah, exactly. I'll help you. But then I told them the story. So some of the story, besides all the work, is that it took them seven years to sell out the first printing of 7,500 copies. So I'll, I'll be frank and just say, my first book on music sales, where it was Oak Publications, sold over 200,000. So I said, oh, we'll probably sell 200,000 of this book because anybody who buys my instruction book is going to want this book uh-huh. for sure. But they priced it, Completely so high, twenty nine ninety five, which at the time seemed <laughs> which at like the a time was money. very yeah. expensive for a book. But it was a big fat four, you know, four hundred page book. Yeah. And then what happened was they sent it out to all these music stores, and then people go to the music store and say, "Oh, what a great book!" and read it at the music store and thumb it oh. over until it wasn't buyable anymore. <laughs> And then the store. And then also not and buy they, it themselves. And they yeah. wouldn't buy it themselves. They'd just say, well, I hope maybe somebody will give me this or I'll whatever. And so the store wouldn't order anymore. And it took seven years for them to sell 7,500 copies. And then they informed me they weren't going to print it anymore. So that was a little disappointing. <laughs> yeah. You know, this big fortune that I thought I was about to acquire <laughs> just went went away and then it stayed out of print it was
2: just out of print now except uh, you could find it on ebay later on for like like 250 dollars per and i mentioned this to music sales and said you know you should just put it out again but sell every one of them for 250 dollars <laughs> and they said that sounds like a good idea <laughs> yeah. Yeah. well
1: it kept going like that and then there's uh you know by this time yeah, into the 90s, yeah, some yeah in the late 90s, now there's the internet and banjo discussion groups and whatnot, and Masters of the Five-String comes up quite a bit because it's the authority on 70 banjo players and Bill Monroe's opinion of banjo players. Yeah. There's nothing like it in, in the banjo world, even though we had both done pretty extensive books. And uh, it was kind of driving me nuts to think that there were all, you know, what few copies people wanted to get rid of were selling in the hundreds of dollars. And so I got in touch with John Lawless, who I, who had done uh, a number of tab books for me and other people. And he was a publisher. He had what was called AccuTab Publications. And I said, John, you you're the man to publish this book. And he wasn't exactly leaping up and down about that. So he put out the word that if he could get 500 people to agree to buy the book, he would, he would reprint it if that was possible. And then uh, Dan Early was the guy at music sales, really nice guy. And I, I told him what was in the works. And he says, uh, yeah, we have the plates that it's printed from. You can have them, he said. I assumed we were going to have to buy them, but he just wanted us to have them. He says, do what you want with them. And so, hooray, right, we can. So I got in touch with John Wallace and I said, you don't, you know, we want to pay for that. But so he puts the book out, except now it's $60, which is, again, prohibitive. Except when we started advertising, people were buying it, but not all that many. And I think he might have even printed it a second time. But he, we are now doing this in the month of June 2023 and the very last hard copy has recently been sold so if there if you see a hard copy hold on to it because maybe it'll be worth gajillions of dollars (laughs) except i you know but now all this information is more than 30 years old it's from the 1980s some of it is closer to 40 years old and most of the people that are really interesting today's world of bluegrass are not in the book cuz they're too young like Noel mckelney yeah. We did get Bailey in the book with a nice big fat interview but um uh, everybody else in the book is either dead or old at this point Including except for us. me and Tony. No, you, <laughs> oh, we're, we're only we're in in our accepting 70s us. Now, oh, that's young. That's right. So that's right. We're not that old. <laughs> but um anyway, so John Lawless, thank goodness, still had I forget whether it was the film or the files. Yeah, he has PDF files of the whole book. And he says, I'll give them to you. So I have them now. So theoretically, we could make a 430-page download. Yeah, digital version. <laughs> In yeah. theory. And that's that's where it lays right now. And, and like I said, after telling the sad story to Ned and uh, Ian about what we did to create a fortune of... 7,500, you know, the the sales might've gone as high as 10,000 total, which is considered kind of fairly good, but not especially good for any book. But for the amount of work in it, I I believe it comes out to about a dollar an hour. But, um, I know I'll speaking for myself and I'm guessing for you too, Tony, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't trade that time for anything, even no, though no, no. I hated uh, all that work, sitting on the bus typing away and calling people to say, when are you going to send the photos and all this stuff. And this is all pre-internet when you can't just put it in an email and just send it out to 30 people. It meant phone calls to each person. Yeah.
0: You, or you could write them a letter. And <laughs> then know, good mailing the that. photo, right. So, Looking back at the interviews, is the, are there topics that you... Think we're missed opportunities in any way, or that you? I left? don't remember anything specifically. I mean, I honestly haven't
2: leafed through that book in quite a while. I'm too <laughs> busy have. doing other stuff. Yeah, yeah well, that's good. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I'm sure there were things in there. I wish I'd asked. I mean, I, I interviewed Earl uh, a couple of times in his later years, and I, why didn't I ask him that? You know, why didn't I ask him this? And you know, yeah. there's certain things. I mean, there were things that I asked him. Over the phone, one thing was, why, you know, I never asked him, why did you bring your thumb over to the second string for the, the second hammer on a Foggy Mountain Breakdown? And he said, because it felt, felt good. Uh, okay. Which I think means if you're going index, middle, index, middle, fast, it's hard to do that for most people. Uh-huh. It's, you know For me, it's, there's something about that movement that's difficult. And then he said, also because... When you're picking with your index finger, it's closer to the bridge, the way his hand falls on the banjo, and the thumb's out ahead of it. So you have a sharper tone with the index and a more mellow tone sure. with the thumb. Plus, it's a metal pick and a plastic thumb pick. And that tonal difference meant something to him. Wow. Like, Whoa. Yeah, it's playing. Yeah, at that tempo. Yeah, one you're note aware out of, of the every tonal.
1: A, there's 11 notes a second when you're listening to her, his recording of Foggy Mountain Breakdown. So he cares about one of them that takes an 11th of a second and it's bugging him. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And that
2: means something to him. God, this guy's even more of a genius than I realized. Holy oh yeah. Cow. A lot
0: more to it than just, it felt good. Yeah. Once you, once you dig into it, it's a tonal yeah. thing.
2: Yeah. Wow. Well,
0: I'll,
1: I'll get back to a little bit more about Earl. Um, cause you know, I have to say I was a friend of his. I, I got to stay at his house once, and he drove me to the Grand Ole Opry once, and it was just amazing that he, you know, he accepted me as somebody in his life. I was also very worried about the fact that I, was, I had the responsibility of writing the largest essay about the music of Earl Scruggs that would probably ever be written. It's 20 pages long, and it's detailed. My own observations combined with things that he had in his column in Pickin Magazine. So I wrote all this stuff and I presented it to him. And now I'm nervous because he might say, hey, No, I don't want to talk about this. He he said Oh, it's fine. He said the whole chapter's fine, except two things he wanted changed. Okay, one of them you might be able to guess, the other one you never guess. Because I quoted Don Reno. Don was the guy who owned the banjo that Earl ended up with for life. And he, Don talked about the trade they had in 1948 for their two banjos. And he said, Earl had the hots for my banjo. Earl said to me, I did not have the hots for his banjo. (laughs) So I had to take that out. (laughs) That was okay. And the other one was very sweet. He said, uh, you can't write a chapter about my career without telling that it was all made possible by Louise. And he was very, you know, he just, she meant so much to him. She was really important in his life. And I remember hearing him interviewed after she had died, and he said, oh, she was just a, a great wife, a great mother, a wonderful agent, and he said a great lover, which I thought was kind of <laughs> cool. And um, so he w- really wanted to be able to say something about that so i put that in and they were both happy with that and that's all i needed for permission and we got to use everything and to me that made the book and then that big chart with all the extra people almost 50 people and i did actually take it to a photocopy place and i made a physical chart that was about four foot by four foot Mm -hmm. but when it went into the book it came out to about 30 pages yeah and you get everybody's birthday, you get everybody's bridge height, Yeah. who are their four influences from banjo players, who are their four influences from other than banjo players. And then I did an analysis of that. And one of my favorite things about it, and it came later, it got in the next edition of the book, was I approached the difficult section or subject of how many fingers do you plant on the head mm-hmm. out there in... <laughs> banjo podcast land how many th- fingers should you put on the head is it two earl said you put two on the head yeah. and i had a argument in print with jack hatfield because he says it won't be good if you don't have both fingers on the head and i had a big discussion with bill evans he said you got to have two fingers on the head so i polled 40 people and i found out a third of them don't put two fingers on the head. And then my line became somebody has to explain to Sammy Sheeler that he's not very solid, but if he put a second finger on the head, he'd become a solid banjo yeah. player. And Allison Brown, she she could really improve her playing, you know. That issue is dead now, as far as I'm concerned. It was like you gotta have two fingers on the head and now it's yeah.
2: common knowledge that you don't. I asked Earl about it one time, and he said that uh, when he was a kid, uh, he was playing already, he was a teenager, whatever. Uh, I think it was Junie, his brother Junie, was, uh, met this guy from Virginia who was a banjo picker who was, happened to be in their area. And Junie said, oh, yeah, my, my uh, brother Earl plays. I should get you two together. So Junie brings the guy over to the house, and Earl watches him play. Earl told me this. And he had his pinky planted, but his ring finger went with the middle finger, as the muscles of one's hand will do for some folks. And he was great. And so I said, so does this mean – does it matter if you have one or two fingers on the head? He said, no, it doesn't matter. Whatever works. But in his book, he says two fingers. Did he say that? It's in his book. I'll just Did leave it at that. Did he say that? Uh, don't know I that. won't ever know that. Well, years later, he said, it doesn't matter. So I'm going to stick so with So I'll tell that. Jack Hatfield that and just, <laughs> I <laughs> love <laughs> Jack Hatfield. So, so there we you really go. We really
1: had it out over that issue back and forth until Hub Nietzsche said, take it outside, boys. <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> but so the that's that. just some of the, th- so we end up remembering a lot of what was said, which makes us a better informed couple of banjo guys who teach, both of us teach and write books and things. And I'm glad to have that there. And I'm also glad that in some cases it gave a boost to the players who got in the book. There are still Mm -hmm. people like um, Richard Bailey, who is very grateful that he got in the book. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he deserved to be in the book, but he was kind of unknown at the time. We just knew he was good. And so it was a pleasure to be able to help people in that way but i still i'd see billy ray latham he's not in the book i hope he still likes me he was very nice to me thank goodness Mm -hmm. (sighs) and then an unnamed guy from california roasted me for not putting him in the book and he wasn't even close he had hardly ever made a record but he thought he was important enough to be in the book Um, It it wasn't Peter Schwimmer, I should mention, who was good enough to be in the book, but he wasn't making records. And Peter never complained. But this other guy who I shouldn't name,
0: really, he wouldn't talk to me. Is he he the only one you can remember ever confronting you about? uh... Uh, A wife of,
1: in particular, a wife of one of the players who got in the book but wasn't one of the featured eighteen? would continue she had a newsletter and would continually mention that what a shame it was that eddie was not given full attention in the book time Mm -hmm. after time and i was friendly with both her and the banjo player husband and i explained it as well as i could you know he was playing with david allen co oh i guess i gave it away sorry you said his name yeah well oh i did already (laughs) okay (laughs) well anyway and I, I think Martha's a great person, and she is so, such a great supporter of Eddie, and I think Eddie is a prince. He's a wonderful player and person. And I, there was no insult of any kind intended, but I had to keep seeing her newsletter saying, unfortunately, now she has people writing into me complaining about him not being in the book. With Bill Emerson, I never got a complaint, but we had a chance to substitute. We, we needed a full-page photo. So they had somebody ready to go who I didn't think was that significant. I said, let's put a full-page photo of Bill Emerson in this book. So they did. That made me feel better because Bill Emerson, it would have been in the book had he been active at the time in yeah. on the scene. Sure. And, you know, um, now we have 40 years of banjo players who have stood on those guys' shoulders. Absolutely. And made a gigantic difference. And we've had a 40, you know, we talked about the future of the banjo and nobody said, well, all these people, Noam McKelney is part of the future. Who's that? How do you spell his name? You know? And and uh, I don't know, who's that guy, Rex, who who plays, uh, he has a funny tuning. Rex McGee. Rex Yeah, he has McGee. like a I mean, tuning. Or yeah, something. and uh, just, and, and we're not even talking about the claw hammer geniuses that are all over the place. So...
2: And now Nikolai Margolis, who's yeah. incredible yeah incredible. And the, there's a
1: kid uh, that I know from North Carolina named Ettore Bazzini, and he's already made a record at the age of 15, and mm-hmm. you should hear him play Farewell Blues like, Hello? He's I'll 15.
0: check it out. I haven't heard of him. <laughs> he's, he, Nicolai, he just but...
1: put out a record on Patuxent, and he also sings and writes songs and plays guitar and is into all kinds of styles, but he's a solid, down-to-earth banjo picker who, pl- who cares more about bluegrass than anything else. And his parents are like, uh, what do we do? What do we do? And he's a great kid. He's real easy to be around, and, but he's going to be on the scene. And he's been renamed because his name is Ettore Bazzini, mm-hmm. because his father is from another country and they name people like that. But they've renamed him on the record as Eddie Ray, as though his last name is Ray and his first name is Eddie. Okay. But his real name is Ettore Bazzini.
0: <laughs>
1: I just think it's a, a brilliant thing that what Earl Scruggs started in his little humble home when he was nine years old blew up to this very, very important kind of music that is branded as american music although there's incredible players in japan and finland and australia it's all really inspiring and we took a good snapshot of the whole scene as it was when it was only 40 years old now it's closer to 80 years old and it's going to get bigger and bigger and more and more amazing people what you're doing is part of what's making it grow. There was nothing like you doing what you're doing out at the yeah, time. Yeah, I don't have a
0: page limit
1: or, or anything.
0: <laughs> I, don't, I don't need to draw the line after 18 people. I can include yeah, whoever I want. But you don't have any photographs on your... There's some shortcomings. There's some, there's some advantages and some disadvantages. <laughs> and the tabs, of course. Yeah, yeah. Anyway,
1: so thanks for being interested in this. Um, oh, of it's course. It's one of my... Uh,
0: one of the things I'm proudest of in my whole life, really, that we got to do this book. Do either of you feel like it Changed your playing at all? Do you remember taking anything to heart as in terms of nah. revelations? <laughs> what do you, I don't. What do you I
2: think? don't think so. I mean, I I think it enriched my playing just transcribing all those tunes. I On that. some level, that'd be hard to quantify. But you know, transcribing Ralph Stanley or Bela or Earl or you know and Sonny JD, whatever. Uh, I'm sure some of that got in there on some level, as any transcriptions I've done over the years has, you know. Uh, but I don't n- nothing I could pinpoint. And say, well, from point A to point B. Now I'm doing this that I wasn't doing before yeah. it, 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 on a more subtle level. But it certainly, on some level, enriched my playing.
0: Yeah. Well, for, for me,
1: you know, part of my joy and involvement in bluegrass is the people involved. So some of the what really stuck with me the most was what people said in the interviews. Mm-hmm. So I'll throw out one more little gem, which is how J.D. Crow learned to play. Uh, he was already into guitar, but S- Flat & Scruggs had a, the radio show right in Lexington where he was growing up. So his dad would bring him down to the radio station and put him in the front row right sitting in front of Earl mm-hmm. for about a year when this happened. And he kept seeing this. And I said, well, do you ever talk to him? He said, no, I was too scared. I said, well, you know, one time I did talk to him. I said, well, what did you say to Earl? And he said, I believe this is a precise quote. How do you make it sound like your notes is a mile apart from each other? Which is JD's way of saying, he became very fond of the word separation as an important characteristic of good banjo playing. In other words, the individualization of each note. And I said, well, what did he say? And he said... I don't know, (laughs) (laughs) which is a typical Earl answer. And then he said, well, he said, and this is a gem, really, I think he says, I just try to make every note count. And when I teach, if I hear somebody kind of mumbling through a note on the second string or the fifth string, I tell him, see if you can make every note count, which means there has to be an individual you're not just rolling your fingers along the way you would on your knee. You're individually picking each string. Each string is going to have something come up to it and bang it hard and and really cause it to go bang, you know, uh, or, uh, I call it a happy explosion. Anyway, so that was just remembering that he said that. And then Alan Shelton says, uh Oh, my dad said it. my hand looked like a big spider crawling across the floor because <laughs> Alan was not one of these people like Earl who kept his fingers very close to the strings. If you watched him play, he would reach way out with his right hand and then come back and hit the string. Well, it didn't hurt his timing or his sound one bit, but it proves it pops some, some um, myths. The myth of the two fingers on the head. It's gone. As far as I'm concerned, I think it's gone. I hope it's gone. And you know, you have to do this because Earl did this. You have to own a pre-war flathead master tone. Well, we found out everybody's banjo, and the minority of them were pre-war flatheads. You have to do this, you have to do that. No, you don't. Look at all these people who do it different ways. And that was a big motivation for me to even do the book in the first place because I was around people who who were quoting all these myths. As though they were true, because they heard one person do it, and they figured, well, he's a pro, he knows better than anybody. And I didn't want that to stand. I'm too much into
0: accuracy. One of my favorite aspects is the the question of what album or recording best exemplifies your, your banjo playing. And again, it's a snapshot. A lot of them recorded many things after that question. But for someone like me, who got this soon after I started playing and felt like, I need to figure out who all these people are and what they sound like, that was a a shopping list that I could go to. So, yeah, real thorough and really useful all the way around. Yeah, I like
1: that. You know, what record best represents your playing was a good question. But of Mm. course now, those records, none of them exist, but if they said the name of a a tune, you could find that on Spotify. But, you know, Walter Hensley's old-time favorites you say, where is that?
0: It might be in a used record store, but it won't be available on the internet. Yeah. There's, I mean, we could go off about that. There's, there's some YouTube channels that are pretty good for out of, out of print stuff, but yeah, that's a digression. Well, I've I've taken enough of both your time. I can't thank you enough for, of course, for putting in all the work, however many years ago about the, about the book. But of course with me here, uh, today too. It's been fun hearing the stories and everything. So, um, everyone go, uh, I don't know who should they email saying that they demand the, the reprint. If they
1: write to, if they write John to Lewis? my
0: website, you know,
1: they could write to, um, office at let or just, you know, oh, I'll give my email with that. Pete at drbancho.com com, And we'll just keep a file of those people and try to sell them something else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but if the okay. book ever does become a download, we do that, but. All right. Thanks again, you guys. Thanks Appreciate it. Enjoy the rest Appreciate of your weekend. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you once again for tuning in to the picky fingers banjo podcast. Extra special thanks to listener Fred Kinch. He's today's VIP supporter of the show. Head over to patreoncom slash banjo podcast to support the show yourself and earn excellent prizes in exchange don't forget to take advantage of the clearance sale over at BanjoPodcast.com. you can get all of your items for 23% off that's those picky fingers shirts stickers and music by entering summer 23 as a coupon code at checkout and that is now through the end of august as always you can email the show at picky fingers banjo podcast at gmail.com thank you so much for tuning in i'll see you all next time